0: When I, when my son was a newborn, I and, and and was you know always breastfeeding, I several times caught myself having the following insane thought: He's a very needy baby. <laughs> and then I'd be like, "What? Like, yeah, he's a newborn. Like every baby is ready. Why would I have such a weird thought? You know, like." But it was like there was something where it's like I, I would look at his neediness and his dependency with like this mix of like relish and like a slight edge of revulsion. Like I would, I used to describe to myself as like a starving person at a hot dog eating contest (laughs) where you're just like, and it wasn't until like sort of that reaction of mine and then trying to unpack, like, where does that come from? And I was like, Oh, I am very uncomfortable with my own needs and my own dependency as a human being. And that's actually really kind of messing me up right now as a mother because I have a lot of needs and I need to accept care and I need to ask for
1: care and I don't know how to. Hey, hey Holly. Hey Amanda. Welcome Lit Mamas. You're listening to This Mama is Lit, the podcast where we explore the multi-sided questions of motherhood. Every other week we'll be bringing you a new unfiltered chat with another mama writer. I'm Amanda Fields, Editor-in-Chief of Literary Mama and a divorced mom of one.
0: I'm Holly Rizzuto-Polker, Profiles Editor at Literary Mama, mom to three amazing children and a cute Jack Russell Terrier.
1: And I'm Brianna Avenia Tapper. I'm also a Profiles Editor at Literary Mama and I have two small children. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hi. How's it going, Yael Goldstein Love, author of The Possibilities? Good. How are you? Nice to meet you. In this episode, we speak to Yael Goldstein Love about maternal anxiety, about the myth of normalcy, and about getting comfortable with uncertainty. So, how would you describe yourself as a mother in five words or fewer?
0: Ooh, ooh I love this question. Okay. Let's see. Playful, curious, connected, guilty. Worried. All right. Those are yeah. my five. Okay. Tell me about guilty. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. Guilty and worried, I think, cannot entirely come apart for me. This uh-huh. is a topic I like to approach in many different ways, <laughs> and um, including living it out every single day. And one thing that I found in my research that I found so interesting, that guilt and worry, guilt and anxiety for mothers are, are just, so intertwined in such complex ways. I'll give you some examples just for myself. When I am feeling really guilty about something that I'm doing as a mother, like I feel like I'll often feel guilty. Like my my son's dad and I are not together anymore. We didn't like figure out how to parent through having a kid. Mm. And I can often feel really guilty about that toward my son, like, oh, I've given you this like much harder life than the one I wanted to give you. And when I feel guilty about that, it raises my anxiety about it. Mm. Like suddenly I start noticing, it's like almost like I take, you know, whatever badness I think is in me and I kind of project it out onto the world. Like, oh, there's something bad and dangerous. You know, it's it's me, but I don't want to think it's me. So I make it the world. And then suddenly like my anxiety about all sorts of things rises. So it's like when I'm feeling guilty about, you know, that I, that I didn't give him the life I wanted to give him. I can suddenly like start worrying about school shootings a lot more. I think it's like totally unrelated. It's like, I, I locate the badness everywhere. I spread it everywhere. And then suddenly I see danger everywhere. So that's a way it really, it tends to go for me. And I, and when I have know, and when I notice that it, it, it can really help. And then I can say, Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> like this is, you know, this is my girl. He's no more likely to like be in a school shooting today than he was yesterday. Like you gotta just, you gotta calm it down. And, but then also I think it can also go the other way for me. Like there are, you know, it is legitimately a very worry provoking experience to be a mother. I mean, we have these little people or big people. I mean, at any stage, we have these people who we are, our whole self is invested in trying to protect and make their lives go smoothly and make them be a productive, you know, richly living human being. And we can't because we're human beings and the world is what it is. And they're subject to chance, just like any other person. And that mismatch between what we are wanting to do so badly, like in the most basic way of just like, we want to like drink when we're hungry and eat when we're thirsty. We want to protect these little people and we can't. I mean, and so like worry is just natural, but I think that, again, you know, for me at least, and I, and I, and I heard this a lot in my research, so I know it's not just me, but it, you know, it might not be everyone. When I start, when I, when that worry starts really getting a hold, you know, around things I can't control and I know I can't control and I'm not currently controlling, I also start to feel guilty as though like, no, but I should be able to. And sometimes my son will have, He's a very neurotic little being as, 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 as anyone would predict for from, from my child. And he's very like a, attuned to social dynamics for a six and a half year old boy. And so like, he'll often come home and he'll like start telling me about something that's happening with a friend. He's feeling left out he's feeling bad. And I will feel so anxious for him. Like, oh, I don't want you to, you know, I, I, I so remember these feelings. Remember, like I still have these feelings <laughs> and <laughs> yes, yes. In the past when 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 there was, I had social problems. <laughs> what's wrong with me? Why can't I prevent this for him? You know, there must be some perfect thing I could say, some, you know, and then and then I can sort of, you know, pull myself back from that and think like, I mean, usually not in the moment, usually like the next day, I'll pull myself back from that and be like, oh, you know, that was, you know, that was like, you were in this moment, you were in this period of anxiety where you realized there was something you absolutely could not control for your child. I couldn't stand that thought and had convinced myself that there was something I could do to control the uncontrollable. And that's where guilt started coming in. And so the guilt was almost preferable, in that moment, the guilt was preferable to, to the uncertainty, yeah, and the lack of control and power.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and it's very relatable also. <laughs> Our guest today is Yael Goldstein-Love, author and psychotherapist. She is working on a doctorate in clinical psychology focusing on maternal anxiety. Her first book, The Passion of Tasha Darsky, explored tension between motherhood and professional ambition. And it's totally fascinating to me that you were already exploring these motherhood themes before becoming a mother. Your second novel, The Possibilities, delves deeper into this territory. It was a pleasure to read, and it was a very familiar representation of postpartum anxiety. It took me back, is what I'm saying. Even though the experience it evoked was really challenging, I was so eager to turn the pages of your book. Why do you think that is, Yael? Why do you think we want to read about characters having experiences that remind us of our own difficult episodes in the past?
0: <laughs> I'll start like with something very light and 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 fluffy life is suffering like we suffer in life you know like we suffer Like like so much of our life is suffering there is a real pleasure even if it's a dark pleasure in going back through our periods of suffering and making meaning of them and trying to understand them in a new light because i think that it helps us to enjoy our present circumstances more to like have a richer more meaningful experience out of the past and the present but yeah, I mean, I don't know, does that resonate for you as something that might explain it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That and validation, you know, like yes. it's it's so validating, I guess is the word, to read about somebody feeling crazy in a similar way, you know, be like, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> Thank God. You know,
0: that is, yeah, that is such a good addition. I really appreciate you pulling that out. Because I think that when I was thinking about sort of the meaning that could be made, at least for me in reading these things, like, that is often part of the meaning I'm making is like, oh, I mean, I think we have this, I mean, this comes out in the book, but I think as a culture, we have this weird relationship with the idea of normalcy as though like some people are normal like who's normal Like, <laughs> like what is this norm- how do we know what like where do we all think we have this idea of what's normal and we all try to act normal basing it on like how everyone else is pretending to be normal and I think there's something so grounding and helpful when we read some experience that we have in our you know in ourselves categorized as maybe not normal and realize mm-hmm. like maybe this is actually quite normal and I can sort of Recalibrate and rethink what happened to me in that light. Once we think of something maybe as not not normal, as in fact normal or just human, which <laughs> seems like a better word uh-huh. because it encompasses a lot more, then it's much more available to us for thought and for feeling. And and so I think yeah, like uh, I'm so glad that you ha- I'm so glad that you had that experience reading this
1: book. In an interview with Victoria Livingston for Chicago Review of Books, you were talking about how. Um, your son's birth was very similar to Jack's birth in the book. And I related to the birth quite a bit. And in particular, right after my daughter was born, she had to be taken pretty immediately to the NICU. Oh. And her cry was very weak. And I asked the nurse, you know, why Why was she so quiet? And the nurse said, there might be something wrong with her lungs. <laughs> and, then, and then I oh handed her. Hand oh my her, God. And like was not conscious. and And so was away from her for several hours. And it's still like... Sort of sad and upsetting, she's seven now, she's fine. I'm fine, but but it was it's it was really a hard experience for me, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the birth and then about after the birth and kind of how your maternal anxiety manifested in the first few days of his of his life,
0: sure, yeah, so yeah, the birth was bad so I was on an epidural. And so I was in this sort of like twilight happy, la la la, like, isn't this fun? I'm high and and I'm having a baby and this is amazing. And through my sort of like twilight haze after hours and hours, it suddenly occurred to me to notice that every time I had a a contraction or particularly long or strong contraction, a bunch of medical personnel would run in and change my position Mm -hmm. in this like sort of like emergency way. And finally I was like, Hey, what's, what's up with that? What's, what's going on with that? It just occurred to me that this is strange. And this very lovely nurse who had been there for, for a while doing this had said, you know, his heart is, now I can't remember the exact term because again, I was on an epidural, but it was something like, it, it was a lining, maybe, I think it was like a lining on the heart monitor anytime I had a strong or long contraction. And they didn't know why, but they were worried about why his heart would do this, that it didn't seem good. And then I said, you know, if that's happening and we don't know why, doesn't it seem like going through labor might be dangerous because that's going to be a much, you know, stronger, longer squeeze. And she said, I'm so glad you said that. We've been trying to convince the doctor of that, but she's not listening to us. (laughs) And I said, oh, can you send her in? And She came in and I and I never met this doctor before in my life. So like she had just come on. She was like, one of the people from my practice, but I'd never seen her. She came in and she's like, everything's looking great. Like, you know, you're almost fully dilated. We're gonna start pushing. And I was like, you know, this this heart thing, it's kind of scaring me. We don't know what it is. Like, I think I should have a C section. And she was like, No, like you're doing great. And sort of like I mean, very similar to what happens in the book, you know, saying, like, no, no, you're doing great. Like as though like I'm like giving up willpower. Like, no, 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 like this doesn't make sense to me. Like, I'm not willing to take that risk. And so I, I sort of insisted on a C-section, which I think is a very strange thing for a mother in Berkeley, especially to do, but I did it. And then they they wheeled me in five minutes later, they take him out, and he's just this blue silent thing. There was the cord was so I mean the cord was wrapped many times around his neck. They quickly unwrapped it, but still there's no sound. And it turned out they're doing CPR for like 10 minutes, nothing, nothing, nothing. The room is filling with more and more people I can't see. So I just keep asking my partner, like, what's happening? Nobody's telling me what's going on. All I know is I have heard no sound. Nobody has shown me my baby. And the room is filling with more and more people. Finally, they, I I hear a little something, a little cough. They whisk him away. It turned out he had a plug of mucus in his airway. They don't know why it just got in there, lodged in there. But so at this point they have it out. He's breathing, but they whisk him to the NICU because he's been without oxygen for ten minutes, Mm -hmm. and they have no idea if he's going to live or die. So so then they wheel me to the recovery room, and I'm lying there for about an hour, having no idea is my child alive or dead. Every time someone came by, because people were constantly rushing by, my partner or or I would say like, what's happening? Like is is he going to be okay? And nobody ever answered except for one person said there's a chance, and I was like, oh that is. The worst answer you could have given me. <laughs> Very similar to your answer. And then finally, after about an hour, the doctor came back um, and she's like, he's fine. Like, we, you know, we're still going to be running some tests in the NICU for another, another couple of days to try to figure out, you know, what why this happened. But he had enough reserve of oxygen in his cord blood to get him through those 10 minutes unharmed. And and to her credit, I mean, she, she told me something that then really affected my postpartum experience, which was if I hadn't insisted on that C-section, he would not have been okay. You know, he would have gone through that reserve of core blood very quickly and he would not have made it. And so that dominated my postpartum experience because I felt like, okay, so my instincts were all that separated this child from death. Mm -hmm. And I am not someone known for my great instincts. (laughs) Like that is not my forte. And so I felt like, Okay, like any little thing he does, any sound he makes, and babies make so many sounds like nobody warns you how many sounds newborns make, how weird are those so sounds. Weird. Are. So <laughs> They're weird. so <laughs> <laughs> weird. And like every one of those little sounds, I'm like, like oh, okay, it's a clue. It's another clue. And like I'm gonna need it next time I'm called upon to save his life with my instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just made me like it took that normal hypervigilance of early motherhood, which I think you know, everyone goes through, but it took it up like several
1: notches. And and
0: that was also how the next few months were for me honestly
1: and do you remember going home with him oh do I remember going home with him was that like (laughs) oh it was well it was pouring rain okay and I
0: was like terrified we hadn't installed the car seat properly and I remember like we got him into the car and I remember and my my partner was driving us home and I was in the back seat with him and I was just looking at him in this car this tiny little thing and I was like this seems crazy like this this doesn't seem like a good idea at all why why have we put this child in this vehicle of death like this (laughs) is madness and then we got him home and i was like he's in my house like this also doesn't seem like this is like i am not i mean and it's like here i am like this is this is the home in which i have been myself and myself is not a very practical Person myself is a person who like can notice at 7 p.m. that I haven't eaten anything yet and I'm faint with hunger. Like this is not a self who should be in charge of someone else's life. And yeah, so it's like I suddenly felt like a lot less competent actually as soon as I got home. And I have been feeling like no paragon of competence even in the hospital, so this was not a good a good trajectory for me. Yeah, it was hard. I also the other thing I remember about getting home. This might have been like maybe the the first day home or the second or even the third. I'm not sure, but it was sometime very very early. I remember I walked into my bedroom, but I walked into my bedroom for the first time, and I just burst out crying. And and the thought I had was, I used to be a person in this room, mm-hmm. uh, and I just, I didn't feel like a person anymore. You know, I felt like a like a like part of a a weird system or something. Like I wasn't sure what I was anymore. You know. I was-
1: Huh. Okay, I want to go back to when you first got home and you were talking about how you were like, I could forget to eat until 7pm, right? And that maybe that was related to the anxiety to some degree, because you might have been questioning whether you were sort of up to the task of, of keeping this kid alive. So in your research or in the research, have you noticed is a general sense of one's own competence predictors for more or less postpartum anxiety? Do you know?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um I mean, the one thing I've seen a ton one thing that's sort semi-related that there's a ton of research on is that how your your tolerance or intolerance of uncertainty is a really big predictor for how you experience your postpartum anxiety. I mean, one thing in in my own research, which was qualitative research, and so I can make no like claims about, you know, this percentage of people in that, but one thing that I really noticed that that I found really, really interesting, and I I think maybe speaks to this a little bit, is that the people who came in saying like, I'm such a worried mess, like I'm a mess, I'm an anxious mess. Those people were not a mess. (laughs) Mm-hmm. They were very worried, but they were very aware of their worry. And they had, they experienced a great richness and sense of meaning from their worry. Like they would say things like, uh, I mean, really things that sort of stunned me and moved me. Like one one of my participants talked about how she feels the, the, the abundance of the world war. And another one talked about how like, you know, she feels like the shadow side, that there's sort of the shadow side of the anxiety is like, this experience of like, just like feeling alive every moment and feeling the wonder of her child's life at every moment, because she feels like it could be ripped away. And then on the other side were, were the mothers who came in saying, you know, I used to be very anxious, but um, but I'm really not an anxious mother. I have these sort of like tips and tools and tra- techniques. Often they are from cognitive behavioral therapy, where it's like, I stop myself from being from being anxious. You know, I do this when I'm anxious. I do that when I'm anxious. Mm-hmm. Those mothers were a little bit of a mess. <laughs> Like, those mothers, you know, as we're speaking, themes, very dark themes would tend to emerge. Things about, like, dark things from history. They'd be like, you know, I don't know why, but I but I often find myself thinking about, like, this horrible thing from history. You know, mm-hmm. but I'm not an anxious mother. Um, <laughs> just these, these horrifying, gruesome thoughts sometimes pop into my head out of nowhere. And also, there was a common theme among among the mothers who, you know, claimed that they were really not anxious mothers, that they had these tools and techniques. That they would, at some point in the interview, would emerge this fantasy of escaping to some safe haven, that they and their children, like, you know, they have some plan of, like, moving to Europe or moving to some cabin or moving to, like, they have some idea in their head of, like, a safe haven they're going to remove their children to. Yeah, that instead of sort of, like, sitting open-eyed with the worry and and the and, and that gap, that like deep existential gap between what we long to do as parents and what we actually can do as human beings and just living in that and 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 accepting it and making meaning out of it, they were trying to avoid thinking about it and it was kind of wreaking havoc and so it really reinforced for me that we kind of have to make our peace with with what an incredibly existentially loaded experience motherhood actually is mm-hmm. that like there's no escaping it you got to just sit with that and 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 make some sense of it and if you do there's real meaning and richness to be made from it
1: i want to know a little bit more about about your own experience was there a moment when you you know as you've said this this normal not normal distinction is maybe not useful and there's such a wide range of experience that we can count as human but was there a moment when you thought i need to get help with your anxiety
0: yes there there was <laughs> yes <laughs> um it was i was driving to my my first like postpartum checkup that like six week postpartum mm-hmm. checkup that they sort of like and it was my first time being away from my son in six weeks. And like, when I say first time being away, I mean, like, I don't think I took a shower in those six weeks. <laughs> it was like, every day I was just like, you know, is there a clue? Is there this? Is there... And so, and I was like, oh my God, like freedom. This is amazing. Like, what am I going to do with this freedom? And <laughs> the first thing that popped into my head of what to do with this freedom was to swerve into oncoming traffic and kill myself. And I was like, oh, well, that is a surprising thought. Yes, um, what is up with that? Yeah. And, you know, and I was like, you know, I did not believe, I mean, and this is really what the book arose out of this feeling. I didn't believe that my son was mine to keep. I really felt like his, his almost death had come too close to happening for us to really be safe. And it was actually not until a couple of years later that I finally got into like really intense in-depth therapy and it, it, it made a world of difference. And I really, I mean, I'm still, I'm still, you know, go multiple times a week. And I still, it still makes a world of difference. like, will I ever fully like heal from that experience? I mean, I think that experience will always be with me. And, and that experience is now in a weird way. Like I wouldn't give that experience up. Like it's, it's so much a part of how I have built my sense of my relationship with my son and I've built all these good things out of it as well. I think I am the mother who really does not sweat the small stuff. And I think partly it's because it's like I sweated that big stuff so, so much early on that I'm like, my kid's alive. <laughs> he's he's good. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, so I, I, I still, I can still sweat the big stuff. What's with- like an
1: example of the small stuff that you don't sweat?
0: I mean, so like a good example is like, we, we, you know, my son was in kindergarten last year. And so we were going through the like public school lottery system. And everyone was like doing all this research on like, which are the best, you know, public schools in our area and which are the, and I was just like, they all look the same to me. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I think it'll be fine. You know, I just like, and, and you know, things about like his reading or my, you know, milestones when he was younger, or what's going on with screen time. Just like all these things of like, sort of like, Worry about like maximizing your child's chances or like maximizing how they're, I, yeah. I just like, I don't, it's impossible for me to say if they would have gotten a purchase on me otherwise, but I know they get no purchase on me and I suspect they get less purchase on me because of that like deep fear that I had felt early on and that can still sort of bubble up in me.
1: Well, it's been just such a delight to speak to you. Thank you so much for sharing so much about your life and your thinking and your research. Well, this is so
0: fun. We're, it was such a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. And- Bye. <laughs> Bye.